The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Uh, tonight will be the last evening I'll be talking about and we'll be discussing appreciative joy. We'll be moving on next Wednesday. But before I say a few things and and then also hear what other people have to say, I thought I would just uh, review what we've been doing this year in terms of the the Dharma talks. So I've been giving a series of talks since January on uh, integrating practice into daily life. And I've been using the Eightfold Path and specifically the three categories in the Eightfold Path. uh, Panya or wisdom, and just thinking about, well, what are the different ways that we can reflect on wisdom as we're going about the day? And sila, which is the development of non-harming or the development of an ethical life, how do we practice that as we're living our day? And samadhi, uh, that one-pointedness or non-distractedness, how can we cultivate that in our daily lives? And so, in terms of wisdom, right from the beginning in January and February and March, I talked about that even something as simple as slowing down, just doing what we normally do in life, but just slowing it down, or another theme might be softening. So as you're driving, instead of feeling hard, just reflect on being a little softer or as you're cooking, just being a little softer, a little less defended. And that's actually a wisdom practice, in a sense, because it's uh, <clears throat> we're, what we're doing is we're using a theme like slowing down or softness as a way of changing the view in the mind or changing what understanding we're living out of. Just like when we're tight, there's a particular understanding that's behind that tightness. And so when we encourage ourselves to just soften a little bit, well, that's then a different uh, attitude or understanding is operating in our life, at that moment at least. So we talked about various ways to, to just particular themes that, in a sense, flip the mind into a more wholesome view or more, more, more wholesome way of relating. And then uh, in the spring, I spent a lot, a lot of time talking about the five precepts and these uh, mindfulness trainings, like the mindfulness training and not of not harming others, not harming other living beings, or not taking things that aren't ours, or not causing harm through our sexual activities, or through the words we speak, or not clouding the mind with intoxicants or other substances that make us less clear. These are various forms of restraints or uh, methods of refraining ourselves from activities that we've learned from our own experience don't support us, don't support our happiness. And so we can't, so during that, those whatever two months when I was talking about the five precepts and we were discussing them, we were really looking at what is the skillful, 
creative use of restraint in life. Because, you know, we can certainly imagine getting really tight about not harming. And actually, some idea we have about not harming actually becomes a weight in our life, not something that's liberating or freeing. So the whole point of cultivating skillful refraining is it's liberating. It enlightens, it lightens us up. The heart gets more buoyant, not more weighed down. Just like the opposite, like not refraining in any way, just letting whatever impulse we have, just letting it go into action. So someone irritates us, instead of refraining from screaming at the person, we just allow ourselves to scream at the person or you know, even hit the person. Or we see something we like, well, we just take it. We don't refrain or restrain ourselves from doing that. Well, you can imagine that our lives would get, our heart would get pretty weighed down with fear, like fear of getting caught, fear of people's revenge, fear of what people think about us. So refraining this, uh, this work of ethical conduct, living a, a moral, harmonious, generous, loving life, it can sound like, oh boy, that's a heavy trip, <laughs> you know, to, be, to have to be a good person, a generous person. But maybe it is heavy, but it's not as heavy as just letting our habit energy act itself out, however it's been conditioned to act itself out. That's a more, a more difficult life, at least it seems to me. And then more recently I've been using the divine abodes as another way of reflecting on wisdom. So we're kind of jumping around. So the divine abodes, these are the four emotions the Buddha talked quite a bit about. Kindness, loving kindness, compassion, uh, recently empathetic joy or appreciative joy, and equanimity, which we'll st- I'll start talking about next week. And so these particular reflections, it's just another way to shift our understanding. So when we're feeling a little aversive, if we can, or a little uh, threatened by the suffering we see in our own lives and in the lives around us, we can want to withdraw or have some attitude like, well, they must deserve it. You know, bad things, if this person has cancer, they probably haven't been eating a good diet. So somehow we explain the suffering, we create some... uh, construct in our mind that in a way gives us a sense of we're protecting ourselves or explaining it but the practice of like loving kindness or compassion is instead to use the suffering that we see in our own lives or in somebody else's lives to actually let it in and in doing that it, it transforms our relationship to the world in that moment so instead of having a defensive stance we have this inclusive stance. Maybe you don't even want to call it a stance. We're relating with inclusivity, allowing things to be. And it, it really changes our lives. So on the surface, it seems that suffering is threatening to us. But as we actually practice with the real suffering in our lives and around us, we see that defending ourselves from suffering creates suffering. And opening to suffering is the cause for intimacy and release, feelings of connection, 
of wholeness and of deeper wisdom arising. So this is how I've been talking about appreciative joy, just to review the last couple of weeks now, where with appreciative joy, it's just another way of changing our attitude or changing our understanding. That's why it's a wisdom practice. Here, you know, in Buddhism, wisdom and love, they're really not different things. So mostly we operate with the opposite of appreciative joy, and that's what I talked about last week. Sharon divided up, Sharon Salzberg divided it up in seven qualities that tend to obscure or prevent appreciative joy or gladness or sympathetic joy from arising. Attitudes like judgment, so a judging mind, a comparing mind, a demeaning mind, a discriminating mind, an envious mind, a stingy mind, and a bored mind. This is we use these seven attitudes or emotions or whatever you want to call them to defend ourselves from joy. It's kind of ironic. But uh, joy, like appreciating what's beautiful, appreciating the goodness in our lives and around us, it's threatening to us. It's threatening to us because we have certain attitudes that we are very familiar with, we like a lot, even though they're heavy, we like it like, oh poor me, I never get what I deserve. And that attitude becomes so much who we are that it's like we feel naked without it. So much so that if something happens in our life that threatens that idea of, oh poor me, we defend ourselves against it. It's like we don't want to let in whatever, let's say uh, all of a sudden someone's really loving us, really likes us, likes being around us, appreciates our humor, sees the good in us, you know? But we have a strong, oh, poor me attitude. Nobody ever loves me, never get what I should, nobody takes care of me. And so we have to push that person away one way or another or shut ourselves off from that experience. So what we've been, for those who people who've been coming, what we've been what I've been encouraging us to reflect on is to notice uh, what actually is our experience with joy, with beauty, with goodness. When we bump up against goodness, beauty, joy, success in our own life and in the people around us, when they're experiencing joy, happiness, success, and they're in a really good place, what does our heart do? How do we relate to that? And to really get to know the different ways that we actually do appreciate it and the ways we defend ourselves, shut ourselves off from it. In terms of these seven qualities, you know, these different ways that we protect ourselves from joy, from beauty, from goodness, the Sharon in her chapter in her book, Loving Kindness, where she's talking about appreciative joy, she tells a, a very ancient story, I think it comes from the time of the Buddha, I think the Buddha actually used it, of a, it's called the monkey in the tar pit, maybe you've heard this story, where, you know, a monkey 
gets a foot stuck in some tar, sticky stuff, you know, can't pull it out. So what does it do? Well, it puts its other foot down in order to pull the other foot out. But then, of course, both feet are stuck in the tar. So then it uses its hand to get some leverage. And the hand gets in the tar. And then the other hand, and there are all four limbs are stuck. It uses its head to kind of pry itself up. And this is kind of our predicament when we're... I mean, this is what really can uh, move our heart toward compassion is when we observe in ourselves and in we, when we observe in others uh, people getting stuck or ourselves getting stuck, caught by life. And then we observe that what we do about it just makes it worse. And then what we do about that makes it even worse. And we just see over and over again around us in our own lives how we create seemingly out of nothing we create really deep and often long-lasting entanglements despite the fact that it's painful despite the fact that we actually know better on some level to some degree we know that it's not working but it's almost like we can't help ourselves like if something's pushing our buttons there, there may be some semblance of knowing, you know, it can't be other than it is right now. This person is just doing the best they can. But we can't help ourselves from being critical or judgmental or, you know, reacting in some way that's not helpful. You know, and then, then we feel maybe embarrassed or humiliated by our reactivity. And then we feel like, we can't handle the pain of that humiliation, so we have to defend ourselves. We have to, like, justify what we said. That's the other hand in the tar pit, you know? And then it's like, it just feels so yucky being who we are. We, need to dist- we, we decide we need to distract ourselves, like, get away from it. Well, that's the, other, that's the other hand going in the tar pit. And it's like one thing after another, and then we just end up feeling really miserable, which supports that ancient attitude, oh, poor me, which is like, that's when we stick the head in the tar pit. We go back to that very primitive conditioning, which is, you know, some kind of hatred of ourselves or of the world or of the people around us, but basically blaming the suffering, uh, uh, externalizing the cause of the suffering, which is, in, from a Buddhist point of view, from the Buddhist teachings point of view, Externalizing the cause of suffering is the essence of ignorance. It's the cause of suffering. Because as we externalize the cause of suffering, it keeps us from really doing something that's going to address the suffering. We have to see how the heart itself is responsible for the suffering that we're experiencing. I mean, this is a pretty radical notion to reflect on this, that... uh, that nobody or no situation can cause us to suffer. Suffering only can arise if the heart or mind or whatever you want to say does it. The heart or mind has to do the suffering. It doesn't like, our UPS doesn't arrive. Got a package, Mark. (laughs) Here's your daily allotment of suffering. No, we actually have to do something to suffer. It's a, you know, internal mental 
process that we do here in this heart, this mind. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter. We can do suffering no matter what the conditions of our lives are. We could be on some beautiful beach somewhere and do suffering, right? We all know that. We've all been in decent relationships or in decent places and done the suffering thing. And we've probably, hopefully, been in difficult situations where we didn't do the suffering thing. Where there is a moment or moments of real happiness or beauty or ease, even though we were in a mosquito-infested place or around somebody who was dying or, you know, whatever. I was just talking to Kevin Wallace, one of our community members. Some of you know him. He's also our electrician at our new building that Common Ground is renovating, soon to be ready, maybe in two months, maybe three, maybe five, (laughs) but hopefully two or so. Um, But he had a bad bike accident just a few days ago, and uh, I don't think he was wearing a helmet, so he ended up getting a bunch of stitches in his head, chipped one of his vertebrae, and really racked up his uh, shoulder. So he's... He was in the hospital, I think, for three days, which is rare these days. They don't let you stay very long. Um, but he was sa- I was talking to him, and he was saying, you know, uh, how much ease and joy there was in the hospital. And they didn't need, I guess, uh, because of the concussion, they, I didn't realize that you can't get heavy-duty pain medication when you have a bad concussion, at least in his case. So I was thinking, I said, oh, you probably had really good pain medication. And he said, no, actually, at first they didn't give me pain medication until they kind of understood what was going on with the brain. And, uh, but he said it was just, you know, there was, there was just nothing to do. And it was so nice. <laughs> he's a father, he has two kids, and he's renovating his house, and he's, you know, a business owner. And so uh, he's got a busy life. And, and just the sort of, that simplicity and uh, obviously you know in a really difficult situation and not knowing the extent of the injuries you know not knowing how quickly he'd recover still just being able to have moments of appreciation of real happiness in that because you know it would have been real easy to just think oh I was so stupid you know why did I do what I did or to blame it on you know the city for putting the curb there on the side of the road <laughs> or whatever, you know, maybe what some driver did. I'm not sure what caused the accident. Um, and just kind of be repeating, like, the mistake he made or the mistake somebody else made or however we might, or just fear of you know, not being healthy again. So we want to we wanna take the ownership because that... Knowing or having at least the operating premise that the cause of suffering is here is really skillful. Even if it isn't true, or even if we don't know whether it's true, it's a really good, skillful way of living because to whatever degree we're responsible, we want to take responsibility for that degree of our happiness. And if we think the cause of our happiness and suffering is out there, what it leads to is helplessness, you know, just a lethargy. I have no control, you know, so why bother paying attention? Why bother, you know, reflecting on how things come and go? 
because it's like there's a beneficent or not so beneficent deity out there who is deciding for me, like whether I'm going to be happy or sad or successful or not successful. So I want to take a little time before I open it up for discussion to uh, just reflect together on what might be supports for appreciative joy. So remember the basic uh, practice of appreciative joy it's not even hard work. All we're doing is learning to be sensitive to what's beautiful, what's good, the happiness around us. We're just learning to notice it. And then when we notice it, to notice our tendency to react to it subtly or not so subtly, and to keep coming back to just mindfulness, just being open. And so one of the first uh, supports for this, like to really be able to do this is we have to know what joy feels like because that will help us hone in on the experience of goodness or beauty or what's lovely. Because as we turn toward towards what's beautiful, by definition joy will arise. It's just it's inevitable. So if we know what the experience of joy is in a very intimate way, then, then it's like we've got this internal barometer. The more we orient towards what's beautiful, what's good, the more we feel joy. The more we turn the attention toward something else, the more we don't feel joy. So in Buddhism, sometimes we use the word rapture or pitti for joy. Pitti is the Pali word. <clears throat> so. And this just is common sense. <clears throat> when joy, when something really pleasant, and here we're, we're talking about an internal pleasantness. So there's, you know, when somebody massages your shoulders when you're real tight, I mean, there's, that's a real nice, pleasant feeling. But it's even, it's significantly uh, more subtle, but even more compelling when <clears throat> the mind or the heart is, is experienced like an inner joy, an inner release. And uh, the mind really pays attention when that happens. It's like when uh, I was, uh, some of you maybe were here last night, Ajahn Chanako spoke. He's a visiting teacher and a Buddhist monk and a really wonderful person. And I was working on the computer yesterday. He walked up behind me and started giving me a shoulder massage. And he really dug in, and it was just feeling great. I was just sitting there, feeling it. And I noticed, you know, like I could really get absorbed into the sensations. But I noticed also, I was still kind of, the computer was in front of me. My emails are right there. <laughs> it's like I, I was easily distracted. But when there's this internal pleasantness, the mind's less likely to get distracted. And instead, its tendency is to become rapt. That's where the word rapture comes from. It gets wrapped, it's like really attentive, interested in the experience of joy. So this is one of the qualities of joys when the mind becomes still because it's like really one-pointed with the pleasantness. Whatever it is, it might even be like a simple kind of joy, it might be a, a little bit of a thrill. You know the experience of being thrilled? 
like uh, even the you know, hair standing at the back of your neck or like that, uh, almost like a energetic or a bright feeling, like, oh, oh. That, that's a sort of preliminary kind of rapture or joy that you can notice. Like, oh, this is joy. So it would be good to just, like, take this as a, you know, as a theme, like, to really get sophisticated about what it feels like when there's that inner pleasantness. What is that experience of joy, of happiness? And then to, then to encourage the mind to be undistracted, like to, to surrender, to give ourselves not expecting it to last because we know things don't last you know so we we might just catch the light and the clouds and the leaves and the color and it might be just strike us being really beautiful and to just relax with that with the beauty of it the pleasantness of it so this is the key is to learn to recognize this I, I guess the technical way you'd say it is mental pleasantness you know, if I stroke my hand, that's a physical pleasant. It's a pleasant sensation. But there are also mental pleasant sensations or pleasant experiences. And to begin to recognize them. Like kindness. Seeing someone else being kind, for me at least, or when I'm being kind, or when somebody's being kind to me, these are pleasant experiences. My heart is moved. That's that energy, that pleasant energy, when I see somebody doing something really beautiful or kind. And so that movement is pleasant. It's just like somebody doing a nice massage on my body, except they're doing it with my mind and heart when we see something beautiful or see something good. And so we want then to have the intention arise in our mind because of this talk and because of our reflection. Oh, I should appreciate this good feeling. I should appreciate the joy. It's almost like, you see how it's a feedback loop. You see something, causes the heart to move. The movement of the heart is then another thing to appreciate. And then the appreciating of the movement of the heart is then another thing. See, it just keeps going like this. So just like we, it's very clear how there are negative cycles in the mind where we're angry or we see something that's disturbing, we get angry, the anger makes us angrier or we're humiliated about being angry again and getting caught up. And just like that can build up, the positive, there's a positive feedback loop too when we know how to reflect on what's beautiful. And basically here, we're going from gross to more and more subtle. The energy builds the more we reflect. It becomes more profound. Just like it becomes more dense and heavy and contracted when we're doing the opposite cycle. It's almost like a, a gravitational pull taking us away from what's true and good versus when we're reflecting on this wholesome inner joy in the mind we're, we're coming closer and closer so the, the joy becomes more quiet but more profound too a deeper release of the heart because the heart relaxes when the heart experiences this more subtle but profound kind of joy it just 
all of its neediness gets quieted. It's like we don't need to go anywhere. We're feeling deeply content with the quality of love that's being experienced or the quality of gratitude or forgiveness or whatever beautiful quality we're seeing around us or feeling seen in ourselves. So this kind of brings us to the the other, what Sharon calls in her book, allies of uh, appreciative joy. So one of the allies or one of the supports is really just being able to recognize what inner joy is. We all have experienced it. We all probably experience it countless times a day, just in tiny little ways, maybe sometimes when we're fortunate in a big way, but many, many times every day. But how many times are we interested in the experience and, and, and with a clear intention, have this clear intention to want to be more intimate, more awake to the experience, to really understand it, and, and to basically continue it by appreciating the joy, which is also a joyful experience, and then just to continue to notice the contentment and to appreciate that. To notice the feeling of ease and stillness and release and to appreciate that. This is what the Buddha calls the heart's release, this inward cycling. I think somewhere in the suttas, in the discourses of the Buddha, the Buddha says something like, joy is the proximate cause or Joy is the path to Nibbana or the proximate cause of Nibbana, of enlightenment. Because it's joy, you know, it's like we can imagine we've got this hungry, fearful animal deep inside, this deep primitive conditioning. So what's going to make that hungry, fearful, angry, needy animal, what's going to quiet it down? Because as long as it's active in our psyche, it's like it makes waves in the mind. So we don't see things clearly because the, the disturbance of that inner animal, that disturbed animal, the kind of unsettledness of it keeps us from seeing things clearly. And then we're always living based on our misperceptions because we're not seeing things clearly. So what's going to quiet the animal down? Well, if you give that inner animal, you know, a good meal, you know, like you give your dog or your cat a good meal, and then it just rolls, our cat, it just rolls in the carpet. And <laughs> you know, it just, for a while, it's not a hungry animal. It's, she's not, assume your cat isn't pacing back and forth or looking at us saying, like, where's our food, where's my food? It's content. And that's what happens with the inner animal in our heart. It becomes content. And that's why it's the proximate cause for Nibbana. Nibbana, or this insight the Buddha talks about, arises when the mind or when the heart sees things as they actually are. Instead of seeing things from this point of view of separateness, we're free from that delusion and we see things as we are, as they are, the wholeness. <clears throat> but that insight can't arise as long as the hungry, angry, disturbed animal is crawling around. So we need to understand joy and, and also 
to cultivate the four of these Brahma Viharas together because it's not so easy to really appreciate joy to see what's beautiful if we're not also willing to open to what's painful. So we have to develop the capacity to be compassionate. Otherwise, we develop this as a way of avoiding what's not pretty, what's not successful, what's not beautiful. So we have to have the skill to do both. That way, we'll just be able to practice with whatever is arising in our lives. So if something really painful is arising, then we cultivate compassion, intimacy with what's difficult, which is, by the way, a beautiful thing. And if there's joy arising around us or in our lives, then we practice appreciative joy, mudita. So I'll just end before our discussion with a review of the practice. So you can do this formally in your sitting practice, but also throughout the day. So there's a basic system to the formal practice of mudita, appreciative joy. First part is, use the experience of your heart as an anchor. So we're actually feeling the sensations in the heart. Even if it feels tight or constricted or numb or non-existent or like a beautiful orb of lovely energy. It doesn't matter, but use the actual experience of the heart center as an anchor for your attention. And when you take a particular object, so find something beautiful, something good that you can see or remember right now. So you need a particular object. You might bring your friend to mind who just uh, fell in love, you know, and then so you have that image of your friend and his or her partner and them being happy together and you're feeling your heart, you're remembering them, you're feeling your heart, you're remembering them. And then the third part of the practice is to, because the... um, All four of the wholesome qualities are acts of generosity. Remember earlier in the evening I I talked about like an inward spiraling or an outward spiraling. But, you know, I'm going to turn it around now. But it's the same idea that the, uh, the wholesome movement of the heart is a kind of generosity. It's like an upwelling of the heart. So we use a phrase... Often, like we, we'd actually send out a gift. May your happiness continue. May it increase. May it never end. May your love deepen. May it increase. May it never end. Or may your uh, your friendship continue. May it increase. May it never end. So what we're using we're using words to help uh, activate the natural generosity of the heart. So those are the three things. Now, you can do this on the fly during your life. You're just walking, and, you know, you see something beautiful. A robin gets a worm, and instead of focusing on the worm, you focus on the robin. (laughs) And the baby robin's in the nest who are going to get part of the worm. And you just say to the mama robin, may your happiness continue, may it increase, may it never end. So you're focusing on the happiness of the robin, on the feeling of your heart, 
and then you're activating this these words, this phrase that's the expression of the natural generosity of the heart. And if you do it in your sitting time, then you would basically the phrase becomes a mantra. Not that you just sort of space out with, but that you're connecting to the meaning of the words. Each time you repeat the phrase, you're remembering the particular situation, you're feeling your heart, and then you're uh, activating the natural generosity. And so I encourage us all to both informally, just as we're going about our day, to be sensitive to what's good and beautiful, and then to feel the heart. And actually, it's like uh, bringing, becoming absorbed or intimate with what we're seeing, whatever we caught our eye that's beautiful or good. Like really focusing on that and feeling the heart and focusing on it, and then activate that generosity with the phrase and just if you're on the, in your daily life then maybe just say it a few times but in your sit you could take maybe 10 or 15 minutes of your formal sitting time maybe at the beginning to do the appreciative joy practice especially now because we've been talking about it really do it for a while like do it every day for several weeks until it it's kind of in your bones and then it can just be something that naturally come up during the day and then, then you can just revisit it from time to time when it seems especially relevant, and you can make it part of your formal sitting practice. But actually, you know, the whole point of meditation is just to not have to sit, although that may take lifetimes, but to be able to live the practice instead of, you know, having to run away to a cave or <clears throat> a meditation retreat or a meditation center or a little corner in our house. But as long as we need that, and like I say, it will probably be for a long time, then let's take advantage of the formal practice, but remembering that it's about bringing it into our daily lives. So I'll leave it here so that uh, people can share what you've been learning about appreciative joy at home, in your formal practice, or any questions that you have about the practice. What comes to mind? Maybe a little bit louder so they can hear it in the back. For me, it's good to hear um, that there's permission to be happy. Yeah. Um, I've been one of those smiley kids from early on, and I've had experiences over my life where people are not happy that I'm happy. Yeah. So I wonder if you can speak to that, you know, as we're practicing this. Yeah, uh, someone mentioned this at the end of Sunday night's talk, and I told Paul, the guy who mentioned it, that, yeah, he should bring it up, because it's a really important point that the obstacles to mudita, sympathetic or appreciative joy, isn't just our own reactions, but it's what happens around us, too. And, And one of the things we'll have to do is it's true our happiness and our appreciative joy can be threatening to other people. It threatens their own oh poor me stories or life is a B-I-T-C-H, you know, and uh, and so if that's a strong conditioning in somebody's mind and then another person arrives on the scene and they're joyful and happy 
and appreciating the moment, then their whole life doesn't make sense next to that. And they, you know, and we feel threatened by that. Just like we can be threatened by our own experience of happiness. Like I, I explained earlier, you know, where it doesn't make sense, so we have to diminish it in some way. We diminish a lot of joy because it doesn't make sense with the prevailing story that we have going on in the mind. You know, we just won't let it in. I can't tell you how much over the course of my relationship with Wynn, where, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's almost a standing joke in our relationship, you know, like uh, she'll say something lovely or it will be appreciative or kind or, you know, and I'll, I'll have to, I, I just feel my conditioning, you know, to snarl or to kind of be reactive in some way, you know, like, you know, happiness can't be that simple. <laughs> you know, it's like we, we think, well, I don't deserve to be happy or she doesn't, she should be happy, you know. You have no right to be happy. Your life is miserable. Don't you recognize that? You know? But the other thing, too, is to, is to really let our heart be nimble. So when, even though we may be experiencing a lot of joy and beauty, as soon as somebody shows up in, in, our, in our circle and they are unhappy, then that's what's in our circle, their unhappiness. So then, if our heart's really nimble, the, the joy then becomes the joy of compassion. So then we're, we're really there. And that's, it is a beautiful thing, but it's a different kind of joy. You know, compassion is a joyful, is a beautiful experience, maybe it's a better word, a wholesome experience, a healing experience. But it looks different than appreciative joy does. And then that won't... That won't get... See, this is the thing. A, a nimble heart doesn't create waves in a way. Or maybe, maybe that's not exactly right. It doesn't create waves that often. Because it, it just... The, the image the Buddha used was just like when you pour water into a vessel, it effortlessly fills that space. It doesn't have to like think, how am I going to fill this jar up? And it's like a, a heart that where these four uh, qualities have been developed. It just knows how to enter a situation. It just knows how to respond in the moment appropriately. But sometimes the appropriate response gets a really strong reaction. So I don't want to give the idea that we're never going to create a strong reaction in people around us. And so, and then, but it, we can reflect on our intentions, and if we see that our intentions are really good, then we should just assume that this is exactly what's supposed to happen. It couldn't be otherwise. That this person's strong reaction is their business, and I care about it, but my caring about it may be the cause for their reaction to get even stronger, you know, or expressing that care may be the cause. So I'll care about them silently. You know, and I'll, out of compassion, remove myself from the presence, you know, if I can. I don't know, maybe other people have thoughts about that from your experience. Yeah, Rick. I will say, like, you know, last week, I was on, I think, for a video, so I was talking about, 
I got up on September 11th, walking to an airport, smiling. Yeah, yeah. All these security people were like suspicious that this person was what's wrong with them. And it brings up something, I mean, that's not what you're saying, Rick, but it reminds me of something that it's important, because I don't think I've mentioned it, but with all of these Brahma Viharas, the Buddha talks about near and far enemies. So these are qualities of the mind that, um, that sometimes get triggered. So like the far end enemy of appreciative joy is the opposite. Something like envy would be the opposite of appreciative joy. But there's a near enemy that looks like appreciative joy, but isn't. And, and what it is for appreciative joy is exuberance. So one of the things about exuberance, it's like when we see something beautiful and we delight in it, you know, we're appreciating it, like in a wholesome way. But then we can get identified, attached to that delight, that joy. And it, and then we get exuberant. I mean, we just need a word, so I'm just using the word exuberant. Because so, sometimes exuberance is a good thing. But in this context, I'm using it in a negative way. So exuberance is when we're caught up, we're identified with the exuberance. And you see, we've disconnected ourselves from the person's joy or our joy and we're kind of like lost in the froth and uh, so that sometimes is what people react to they're actually reacting to our exuberance not so much to our experience of joy or mudita but that somehow we've spun off into into some kind of ecstatic state which the person is experiences like this person's disconnected from me. They're kind of in their own world, you know, and uh, and that you know might not feel so good for people around us if we get lost in that. Other thoughts people have? Greg, I think the closest I came to this kind of experience was uh, I've got three teenage kids. Yeah, I think. All, all people in their teen years have this need. They're all, they seem to be in conflict between the need to break away and at the same time to be supported. And how they work that conflict out, and sometimes it can be very destructive. And two of my three kids chose paths that really put their, their lives and their health in serious jeopardy. And it was very painful to go through and it took a long time. Uh, and, I, and I won't say that all their issues are resolved, but I was reflecting on it not long ago, and just the realization came over me. I wouldn't change a thing. I could have sat there and felt sorry for myself, or, you know, why this, why me? But for some reason I thought, no, this, I, I don't want to change this. This is, this is the way it is. And there is a sort of joy that comes with the acceptance of something that's even that painful. Yeah. yeah I, I can't, it didn't last very long, I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, still, it's still painful. But, <laughs> but now you know it's possible because yeah. you experienced that, that kind of wise 
loving way of being with your life situation as opposed to a reactive way. So you know it's possible. Even when you're in the reactive mode, there's like a little voice of wisdom that knows it doesn't have to. I don't have to be caught in this view. There's another view. Even though you may not be able to manifest it in that moment. Thanks for sharing that, Greg. That's a really powerful example to know about. There's a little bit of time left. Bonnie? I had an experience that happens to me when I read the newspapers that I, I think is Mudita, uh, but it's painful. And it's, it's when I read about... Bonnie, can I stop you? Would, would you be willing to shut the fan off? Uh, you have to stand up. The switch is right at the bottom. You see it there? I just turn it off. I think people are having a hard time hearing each other. Great, thanks. Yeah, maybe. I I was saying that I feel like I am experiencing Mudita when I read the newspapers at times that I believe is Mudita, but it's painful when I read about instances where human beings have behaved in such extraordinary ways, like saved someone's life or gave really selfishly or selflessly, and I, I can't think of any Yeah, it probably is. And the thing is that often we go through life with a pretty tight heart. And then, and then when the, there's that perfect wave and we hear about a story that for whatever reasons, given the way our mind's conditioned, that particular story is like a, law, a key that sort of unlocks the heart for a moment. And because we've been so defended that when it opens, it kind of opens in a mat. It can open in a big burst. And we can go right to tears. And uh, it's to be appreciated, even though it's messy. And it looks, it's a little weird, even. And uh, this is an occupational hazard of people interested in meditation, is your emotions will become, in a way, in some, in some senses, you're, uh, you're in more control. I don't know, control is not the right word, but the emotions are more balanced. But in another way, they get sloppier because we're so much more sensitive and there are, more, there are more keys that are unlocking the heart. But the more the heart gets unlocked, then it becomes more of a steady state and it's not so messy. Uh, but uh, I experienced, you know, for decades I didn't cry. And then for a while there, it was like everything was making me cry. And I still kind of cycle through times when everything makes me cry a little bit or a lot. You know, I'll just do like three or four deep sobs, you know, and then all of a sudden it disappears, <laughs> you know. And so I, I attribute that to the, just the practice. The thing to watch out for is what your mind does with the experience. Like, just let it be what it is. Don't try to make something more out of it than it is. It's just sobbing. It's just a movement of the heart and release. And now it's there and then now it's gone. And don't feel like, well, I can't go away so quickly. And then we try to get... No, it's, it's there as long as it's there. And when it's gone, it's really gone. Just let it be gone. Thanks for sharing that, Bonnie.
Other thoughts before half? Time for maybe one more person. John. Um, I talked to you about this a little bit the other day, but um, I, I had an experience recently where a friend of mine has had some really great opportunities in the Dharma and is going to have some further great opportunities in the Dharma. And, um, you know, I just was watching my, my mind and my heart and, you know, I would oscillate through these periods of just tremendous sort of connection and joy to his own experience and, um, you know, feeling the beauty of that experience to um, states of envy, uh, jealousy, uh, feeling less than, uh, feeling better than because I introduced him to something in my construct. And and they they were disturbing, yet there was also another element where I was able to see, you know, A, I didn't get lost in envy. I didn't act compulsively out of that mind state and a behavior. Uh, And and B, that I could, like, step back from it and just say, that's just a natural proliferation of the mind, just as as upwelling of joy is also a natural proliferation of the mind, and that if I can somehow navigate that with a little bit of spaciousness, then I don't have to be trapped in those things, which more often than not happens, but this was just a very idealized situation because mm-hmm. it was Dharma and everything else. Yeah, yeah. And he's going to continue doing this for several months, so I will have many more opportunities <laughs> to observe. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really great little Dharma talk because uh, the point that I heard John say that I think is so important is that it isn't about not being envious. It's about knowing when there's envy. And because we can't stop envy and judgment and comparing mind and all those other, because it's part of our conditioning. It's going to get triggered. If the question is, when it does get triggered, do we get lost in it? Or do we just see it as a natural phenomenon? Uh, couldn't be other than it is. Of course envy is arising and it's like this. Just like the mudita, the loving, uh, the appreciative joy, that's also a natural phenomenon that is arising due to causes and conditions. And by just staying with awareness, the unwholesome tendencies of the mind are slowly diminished and the wholesome tendencies are slowly increased, strengthened. Just by being mindful. We don't actually have to work at increasing appreciative joy. We just notice appreciative joy when it's there and it gets stronger. It becomes more the inclination of the mind. And we notice the envy when it's there and it gets weakened because we're noticing it. It becomes less strong, less frequent in the mind. Thanks, John. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words and appreciate being here together, how nice it is to be in community, to connect with these ancient and practical teachings that are still very much alive and available, just waiting for us to cultivate them, integrate them into our lives and hearts. And then just reflecting in this way can be the cause for a deep aspiration to arise. Something like wishing to live in a way that supports the happiness, the freedom of all beings. Why not aspire to something this beautiful? We don't have to figure out how we're going to save all beings or how we're going to support 
the happiness of all beings. We can just aspire to be a cause for happiness and peace and freedom from suffering for all beings without exception. May we all live lives of ease and joy. Thanks again for coming. I have a couple of announcements.